We are weeks away from finishing this sermon series on the book of Acts. That'll take us over 28 Sundays, stretching back to uh, early last year. And uh, admittedly, we're in this home stretch, the action seems to slow down a little bit. Some of the more exciting sections of Acts come early on in the book, um, but uh, we're taking big chunks in this um, section of Acts, not because it's boring, not because we're in a rush to finish, but because there's sort of a repeated cycle with the same theme going on in these chapters. Paul is being crushed, smushed, pressured between two opposing forces, strong ones. On one side, the Jewish religious leaders, on the other side, the Roman political machine. And he has already been arrested throughout his life a whole bunch of times, thrown in prison, beaten, left for dead. But this is different, and he knows it. Javert has caught up with Jean Valjean, if you will, and they're in the end game. So uh, just like last week, uh, I, I'm going to storytell a bunch of the narrative as we go along because there's so much, uh, uh, so much to the storyline, but I want to begin first by reading a passage from chapter 23. Uh, it starts with a letter from the local Roman commander telling his higher-up, the governor, out in Caesarea what's going on and why he's sending Paul uh, to the coast, coastal city of Caesarea. Acts 23, starting in verse 26. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as this account of the early church and the spread of the gospel and the ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, wrap up, at least to the extent that you've preserved for us in Scripture, we pray that you would again, as you have, give us spirit eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, th- three things that will walk us through this text. Um, first is sort of a, a, a big picture theme that we see. Secondly, we'll dive into some of the details of Paul defending himself against the accuser, uh, the accusers. And then again, we'll back up to 20,000 feet and see what God is doing as uh, the book of Acts comes to an end. First, confusion and providence. In his novel, Watership Down, Author Richard Adams brings the reader into this world from the perspective of rabbits. It's our world, but it's told through uh, the, the lives of these clans and networks of rabbits. They, they face all kinds of dangers in life, including evil members of their own race, 
their opponents, those who would do harm to uh, other rabbits and other animals. But uh, most of all, their greatest enemy is the human. The human kills for sport. And most dangerously of all the weapons that the human wields is the car. Looking both ways before you cross the street doesn't work for a rabbit because these things, these fearsome instruments of destruction come out of nowhere and they call cars herdudu. It's uh, onomatopoeia, you know, it's, it's the word sounds like it's, uh, the word is what it sounds like and uh, there's no explanation but I, I think herdudu to me sounds less like a car engine and more like what happens to a rabbit's friend when their car comes by. Hrdudu, you know. Um, that's what they call cars. Well, uh, one of the main characters, Hazel, um, gets separated from the pack uh, because he's attacked by a cat on a farm. Well, the farm girl shoes her own cat away and rescues this injured rabbit, checks in with her dad who says, throw him out. And uh, she uh, asks the doctor, I think the veterinarian, to look at the rabbit, and he says, he's fine, but we can't keep him because he's a wild rabbit and we need to let him go. Well, Hazel ends up back home with his rabbit clan and tells them the fantastical fantastical tale of how he had been rescued. And how did you get home, Hazel? Of all things that brought him back to the area that he called home, he got to ride in a (laughs) hrududu. The amazing irony that Hazel's salvation, if you will, comes through this most feared instrument of death. They don't believe him, uh, but that's, that was his experience. There's something uh, of, of a similar kind of irony that happens to the Apostle Paul when he's rescued from the angry mob in Jerusalem. If we back up for a second and uh, survey all of Paul's missionary journeys that took him all across the eastern uh, part of the Mediterranean, uh, we we would note that uh, over and over, he's uh, shooed out of town by an angry mob and for, uh, for a bunch of times arrested by the local authorities and thrown in prison. He's beaten. He's left for dead. It'd be a fair guess that Paul and his companions over the years would be pretty sensitive and and on alert when Roman soldiers were nearby because someone might tell on him and claim that he was disrupting the peace and the Romans won't stand for anyone disrupting the peace. They throw him right in prison. And yet, here in Acts 23 and uh, what just happened uh, in last last week's passage, when Paul is about to be torn into pieces by these folks that have had it with him, of all the instruments that bring his rescue, it's the Roman soldiers. Amazing irony. And further, when they find out about this murder plot, they collect this small army to whisk him away in the middle of the night to greater safety outside of Jerusalem where the crowds are to the coastal city of Caesarea. The enemy becomes a friend. What he had feared and been on alert for becomes an instrument of his salvation, if you will, with a little s, temporarily. But that's just like God, who uses the unlikely to accomplish his glorious purposes, even those who are pagans, who don't believe in him. I've been sharing a bunch of quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer because I'm reading his uh, biography, the biography that Eric Metaxas wrote. And this uh, 20th century German pastor who was executed for his role in opposing Hitler 
was in prison and wrote this to his fiancée. They never married, by the way. I'm under God's special guidance here. I feel sure. To me, the way in which we found each other such a short time before my arrest seems a definite indication of that. Once again, things went, pardon my Latin, hominum confusione et de providentia. Things went according to man's confusion and God's providence. To Dietrich Bonhoeffer, believer in Jesus Christ, this was normal. This wasn't a surprise. Man is always confused, but God is always in control. You know, it's confusing when we look back on this amazing guy. He was executed by the Nazis two weeks before the concentration camp in Flossenburg was uh, liberated by the Allies. He was not, in our uh, perspective, rewarded for his faithfulness. His patience, his assurances to Maria, his fiancée, and his parents, and the rest of his family that everything would be okay certainly didn't turn out to be okay from our perspective, but in God's eyes, he was no less in control. Man might be confused, but God is sovereign over all. But back in chapter 23, when Paul had first been thrown into prison, the Lord had appeared to him at night, and he spoke these words, "'Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome.'" How would God get Paul to Rome? None of us could ever dream up the crazy screenplay that turns out to be the reality of what happens here in the book of Acts. But God's perfectly wise plan unfolds in the chapters that we're looking at today. Man's confusion, God's providence. No need to reconcile the two, simply to trust Uh, Secondly, uh, we move to Paul's explanation and his defense before his accusers. And uh, again, we need to back up and provide a little bit of historical uh, commentary. Felix is the guy to whom the letter is written. He's the governor of Judea. Uh, He's Roman. And uh, he served as a governor of Judea from A.D. 52 through 59, This, by the way, this position of governorship is the same position Pontius Pilate held approximately 20 years earlier. Pilate had just traveled from Caesarea, I I tilted things just to fit it in the slide, uh, northwest of Jerusalem on the coast. Pilate had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he was there holding court when Jesus was arrested. Felix is the governor now in Judea, over Judea. And um, the, the governor always lived in Caesarea, obviously named for Caesar, as the, the Roman outpost on the coast. And here are a few pictures uh, from our 2012 trip. It's the amphitheater in Caesarea. Some dude got in the way there of a perfect shot. Uh, just as in Paul's uh, time, there would be a cargo ship off the coast of the Mediterranean. Um, and then the last picture, uh, just some ruins. But this was the governor's palace. And this is where Paul is taken to be safely kept as a prisoner until a proper trial can be held. And his accusers would travel uh, later in chapter 24 from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where they would uh, stand before Felix and make their case. Well, Paul, in the middle of chapter 24, defends himself and, uh, against the Jewish religious authorities. And, and it's important for, for us to note and pause for a minute here to say that uh, neither Paul's message nor the overall thrust of the New Testament is anti-Jewish. That's just not the case. 
Uh, we talk about the, the opponents of Paul being the, the angry mob led by the Jewish religious authorities, but that's simply a, a historical reality and a wrestling with the revolution that Jesus had brought, a revolution of, of belief, of thought, of tradition. Um, it's just an historical fact that the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman uh, political machine, as I put it, played key roles in the arrests and the trial and eventually the execution of Jesus. But the true cause of Jesus' death is not the Jews, it's not the Romans, it's not Pontius Pilate, it's us. Why did Jesus have to die? Let's put it more, more assertively. Why did Jesus willingly lay down His life as a substitute sacrifice? Why did Jesus willingly accept the full judgment of a holy God, the Heavenly Father, that our sins deserve our sin and His heart of love? Who is responsible for Jesus' death? We are. That's fact. That theological reality trumps any of the historical details. But historically, what led to this event involved the Jewish religious authorities on one side and the Roman political machine on the other, squeezing Paul. The Jewish leaders were, uh, saw, saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life, to the political gains that they had made in living in this uneasy relationship with the Roman Empire. And the Roman authorities were always simply interested in keeping the peace. You do your thing, you pay your taxes, you don't cause trouble, we're good. And a mob, obviously, uh, and a riot threaten the peace. That's the historical setting. Here's a little bit more of the theological argument. Paul responds to these accusations basically by saying he's not anti-Jewish, he's not anti-law, he's not anti-temple. Those are the main things that they had accused him of. He defends himself in chapter 24, but uh, again in chapter 26, uh, before another guy, uh, we'll, we'll treat that later, he um, repeats his defense with different words. And each time, Paul says that all hope, which is rooted in the Old Testament and flows into the present and aims at the future, all hope is focused on the resurrection of the dead. That's the climax of his speech, if you will. So in chapter 24, verse 15, he says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And then in chapter 26, uh, he talks about his hope in what God has promised our ancestors. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled, which is resurrection. He's, he's actually forming a tighter continuity between the roots of the Jewish faith the Old Testament, and what he is teaching and believing today. He's saying that the Old Testament points ahead to and is fulfilled by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Paul's not anti-Jewish. He hasn't abandoned the faith. What he's saying is that he's, he's gotten to the heart of the faith, which is in the resurrection of Christ. The religious leaders refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah, and their hope is directed elsewhere instead of resurrection. And Paul is basically saying, you have abandoned the faith. There's no politically correct way to say it, 
But that's the theological reality underneath this trial that's taking place. Resurrection isn't just this unique marker of these uh, brand new followers of Christ in the first century. Resurrection isn't just a theological concept that we sing about and we talk about and we celebrate on Easter. Resurrection has incredible uh, practical implications. It affects everything that we base our lives on, especially because resurrection and judgment go hand in hand. Hmm? Let me explain why I say that. Question for you to consider. What do you hope for? If you're like most people, you'd say, I hope for health, a better job, richer relationships, long life, anything that leads to and cultivates a greater joy. That's what I hope for. And the flip side of the coin is, is what do you, uh, what drains hope from you? What, what causes despair? And again, if you're like most people, you'd say death and the grief of loss that death brings, suffering, physical, emotional, mental, hopelessness, the, the sense that uh, my life has no purpose, the drudgery of life, just putting one foot in front of the other to make it, but for what reasons, what ultimate purpose. Resurrection promises to fix all of that and more. Resurrection means death does not have the final word, but that the believer in the risen Savior Jesus is promised to dwell in the very presence of the Creator, which is what we were created to most enjoy, to be most fulfilled by. Resurrection means that life and purpose and joy and meaning will not drain away if something should happen, but will only ever increase and grow more complex in its beauty. Resurrection means that God will set right everything that is wrong. God will correct every injustice. God will heal every wound. God will restore everything lost. That's just about everything, isn't it? The familiar refrains of Israel's national poetry set to song called the Psalms would echo this over and over and over. Interestingly, our call to worship is one example. And here's another from Psalm 98. I'm going to fly through the first part, okay? Not disrespectfully. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Pause. Why? Why praise? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. You know, we live in a land that has uh, protection, due process, individual rights, right? The justice system isn't perfect, but it's certainly better than a lot of other parts of the world. And it's, uh, it's worlds better than um, most cultures and societies and systems of government and justice uh, throughout history. Injustice was always such a, a core root of people's hope. I have been wronged. There is nothing I can do in my limited power to fix this. I'm going to go to my unjust death, but God, I trust that you will make right everything wrong. God will judge the world in righteousness the right way, as it should be, and the peoples with equity. 
Look at your bulletin later on, the call to worship, Psalm 96. It says the same thing. This was the stuff Israel had sung for its entire history. Hope was rooted in resurrection and judgment. Resurrection, why? Because what causes despair commonly is death, loss, grief. Judgment, why? What causes despair and the loss of hope is, this is not right, but there's nothing I can do. My whole people, my, my family, my clan has been wronged. And there is no recourse except for trusting that God will one day set all things right. Judgment and resurrection are our hope. Paul wasn't saying anything new. He wasn't denying anything of the roots of the Jewish faith. He was saying it has all come to fulfillment in Jesus' victory over death. And the king above all kings sits on his throne and one day he will return. On the last day, the day of judgment and the day of resurrection are the same. And he'll make all things new. At the end of chapter 24, Felix, the governor, and his wife are having this private conversation with Paul. And they did it several times. And uh, in the middle of of Paul's sentence, Felix cuts him off and says, we're done. (laughs) Why? Because Paul had started talking about the judgment to come, and Felix didn't want to hear it. This is a, a great example of the polarizing effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if, on one hand, you trust that Jesus died in your place, that means you trust that He has received the judgment of a holy Father that you deserve, but it was poured out on Him while He hung on that cross. He suffered hell, judgment for you, and you're free through faith in Him, and you are forgiven, and you have hope for the future. There is no fear, but on the other hand, If you trust in anything else, including your own goodness, your ability to manage life, to figure out what uh, brings ultimate purpose, then resurrection and judgment only bring condemnation. The unease of wondering what the judge of all the earth will say about the life you've lived on the last day. Last thought, kings will bow down. We're back up to 20,000 feet. Uh, And again, I need to fill in a little bit of the narrative. At the end of chapter 24, the governor um, of Judea, Felix, is succeeded by Festus. Festus immediately starts playing political games. He wants to curry favor with the Jewish religious authorities and uh, asks uh, Paul to, to give up his citizens' rights and return to Jerusalem to stand trial. And Paul says, no, I won't do it. Uh, and he exercises the ultimate right of the Roman citizen in the, the justice system, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And uh, in chapter 25, verse 12, after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. That was the right thing to do. And while Paul's still in prison there at Caesarea, King Agrippa and Bernice arrive for a visit. It's a little bit complicated, but... Um, the governor in Judea, of Judea lived in Caesarea. He was Roman. King Agrippa was a Jew, and uh, King Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. We met Herod in the beginning of the Gospels when the Magi show up and say, hey, do you know where to find the, uh, this uh, baby Messiah? And Herod freaks out, asks that the Magi find the baby Jesus and tell him where he is, uh, but then angel tells them, don't do it. 
And uh, we find out why, because Herod the Great was threatened by a new king of the Jews, having been born. And he proceeds to kill thousands of innocent babies in the hopes of, of getting the one that was born, Jesus the Messiah, and he misses. But this is his great-grandson, not a great lineage. And King Agrippa shows up, um, and Festus wants Agrippa to help him write the letter to Rome to explain why they're sending this prisoner. So Agrippa asks Paul to speak, and Paul's defense, this is the second big defense, again includes his personal story of conversion when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And Paul recalls in great detail what Jesus had said to him that day. Jesus gave Paul the commission to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Big picture. Everything from Acts chapter 13 to the end of the book is a fulfillment of this commission that Jesus gave Paul. He's preaching to the Gentiles, largely. He goes to the synagogue every time. Every, go, every time he goes to a new city, they typically throw him out, and Paul returns to his core mission, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. Um, and that's how the book of Acts will end, by the way. I'm giving away the secrets. <laughs> you can find out yourself, of course. At the end of his speech, uh, his speech Paul asks Agrippa, the king, Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The two leaders confer. This is why I titled the sermon Kings of the Earth. They're the ones with authority. And Agrippa says this, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And if we're really into the story, we might be tempted to think, no, Paul, if only you had stayed quiet for just a few days longer, this guy would have come by and helped Festus see the reality that you had done nothing wrong, that the law has no right to keep you, let alone beat you or put you to death. And had Paul not said anything, he could have been freed from prison and returned to the fourth, fifth, and sixth missionary journeys. How much more good could he have done in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ across the Roman Empire? But this was God's plan. According to man's confusion and God's providence, it doesn't need to make sense to us. We don't need to be the ones who have said, yeah, that's how I would have written the screenplay because God wrote it a very different way keeping Paul in prison, and then delivering him through the chain of command in protected custody to the heart of the empire, the seat of worldly power, Rome, still in chains, was all so that God could deliver Paul and enable him to proclaim the gospel of the king of kings to the highest worldly authority at the time, a so-called king. These kings of the earth don't, as far as we understand, place their faith in Jesus Christ. But this line from a song we sing still is true, nor do they tend to today. They tend to be intoxicated by their own power. But this is still true. On the last day, the day of judgment, 
Kings will surrender their crowns and worship Jesus. That's my favorite line from that song we sing. Kings will surrender their crowns willingly or against their will. They will worship Jesus. Does that mean they become Christians? Not necessarily. Worshiping Jesus could, I don't know what the author of the song means, but it could simply mean recognizing His ultimate worth. Because the, the, the separating veil between heaven and earth, there's these uh, physical and spiritual realities will be, will be pulled back. And these kings of the earth very well may bow down to worship and say, no, I was wrong all along. But they will still surrender their crowns in abject humility, forced or willing. And as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, and as we'll hear in this next song, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These kings of the earth, sometimes they get in the way. Sometimes they unwittingly help the cause of God. Sometimes Paul's free. Sometimes he's shackled. It doesn't matter. According to man's confusion and God's providence, we trust God's plan is being fulfilled. His gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And Jesus, who is the King of kings, will be exalted. Will you bow with me before the King in willing humility this day, well before the day of judgment comes? I hope you will. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we recognize you alone are worthy, we bow down. And before you, Lord, before your throne, it doesn't matter if we're a prince or a pauper or a son or a daughter, all bow down, all set aside pedigree and status and riches or poverty because none of it matters. But as we trust in you, we have all things. Jesus, Come back, save your people, finish what you have begun, and make all things new. Amen.